Things were better when I was young. You could ride your bicycle all day in the streets and no one worried about you. You could zip through the airports. When you were done with work and you went home, you were done with work. But the best thing, the reason that things were better when I was young, is because I was young. When I first stepped up to Rickles Jim Krause Pavilion almost four decades ago, I knew so much more than I know now. <laughs> it's true that some things are better now. In all sorts of ways, life has improved, and if somebody tells you otherwise, then they are not paying attention to the increase in life expectancy, the decrease in all sorts of disease and discrimination, the decrease in global hunger, and overall poverty and violence, and on and on, but in one way, in one way, life really used to be better. And if you want to know what it is, all you have to do is look in last two weeks ago in the Torah portion. Because in Kitavo, there lists all sorts of curses, terrible things that are going to happen to the Israelites when they enter the land. And there are some really terrible things. But the very last curse, the culmination of all those curses, is lo ta'amin b'chayecha. You will not believe in your life. In other words, all those curses which are objective things are not as bad as the perspective that you might have on your own life. And we know, even from statistics, that we suffer that spiritual crisis in our nation and in our world. Just ask anyone who tracks mental health Suicidal ideation is up among young people and among adults. Depression is up. Despair. Part of it, I know, have no doubt, is biochemical, but a lot of it is because we have a spiritual crisis. We don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe in our lives. Our teenagers are artificially inflated with social media and self-aggrandizement, they have become avatars of their own lives that are put on display, but they don't really believe it. There is a hollowness at the core. So how do you learn to believe in your life? What is it that gives you meaning? If I were speaking Jewish, I would say Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut Chasadim, but if I want to give it to you in the language of the greatest expert on human meaning in modern times, Viktor Frankl, 
in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says there are three things that give a human life meaning. Work, love, and suffering. Let's start with avodah, with work. The point of work is not work. It is mission. It is to give yourself to something that is greater than you. This year, I went to Basel to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the Zionist Congress. In 1897 was the first Zionist Congress, and there were some 200 delegates there. And they gathered there, those 200 delegates, because they believed in something. Most of them lived miserable conditions, despised, dejected, disdained by the society around them, but they still thought they would change the world. And they did. They believed they were shepherds of a great cause, and they were. It was avodah. And they founded a state not because they were worried about their own egos, but because they were worried about their own people. They devoted themselves in the true sense of avodah, which, as you may know in the Jewish tradition, means sacrifice. They believed that their life wasn't about accumulating, but about aspiring that they would do something greater than themselves. How many times did I have conversations over the past couple of years, talking to people about the synagogue and the Jewish community, and they said, well, what does it give me? The delegates at the Congress said, well, what can I build? They were humble in the deepest sense, in the sense of C.S. Lewis's wonderful definition of humility. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. The first search for meaning is to spend your life on something that will outlast you. And the second is Torah, which means love. It might sound strange to you to hear me define Torah as love, but you know, the rabbi said that the Torah was the ketubah between God and Israel. It was the wedding covenant between God and Israel. And I have to tell you, while in this world there is an increase in connections, there is a decrease in love. Over the years that I have been here, in recent times I have seen that we have lost those sparks of community and togetherness, that we see other people as targets and not as comforts, and that fear has taken the place of joy. I hope, I hope that this is the beginning of a change in our community and in our world, that we're beginning to see the destructiveness of this division, the centrality of decency, the necessity of forgiveness and the dangers in estrangement. The truth that anger gives meaning for a moment 
and love gives meaning for a lifetime. The favorite story that I have about this, which I have told before, is the story that Shlomo Karlbach used to tell of going to a small town in Eastern Europe some 40 years ago and finding this man who was open and loving and warm, very different from the people around him. And he said to him, what makes you so different? Why are you like you? And the man said, I know what makes me different. I can tell you exactly when it happened. Look, he said, I, I have lived in this small town my entire life. And I remember before the First World War, a rumor swept through the town that the Cossacks were coming and they were going to loot and pillage and burn and destroy. And so the rabbi gathered up all the children from the town and brought us to his house. And there in the dead of winter, he paced up and down all night as our parents ringed round the city watching to see if we would be invaded. And I was curled up in a corner of the Rebbe's study pretending to sleep, but it was bitter cold and I couldn't sleep. And in the middle of the night, the rabbi came up behind me and he took his cloak off his shoulders and he placed it over me and he said, good child, sweet child. You know, said the man to Karlbach, it has been 75 years since the rabbi spread his coat on me, but it still keeps me warm. A gesture of love, a word of love, a kindness where there could be anger. It not only can change the person that you speak to, it changes you. And then there is suffering. I compared it to Gemilud Chasadim, to doing kindness, because to do kindness in this world, you have to see the pain. And often doing a kindness grows out of pain. I went to a refugee camp this year in Ethiopia because a young man who had miraculously made his way out of that camp asked me, would I go? And I went, and the conditions were awful. Not only in the camp, but even in the surrounding town. And in the camp itself, there's one doctor for 69,000 refugees. The hospital is an empty room. And they said, you have to see this, though. And they brought me to a small clearing with a tree, and around it were some young men. And one of them standing next to the tree, and next to him was a poster. And I said to him, What's this about? And he had a little bit of English. And he showed me all the haircuts that were depicted on the poster. And he said to me, my father was killed. I'm alone. But I learned how to cut hair. And everybody in the camp comes to me, and I cut their hair, and I'm going to make it out of here. 
His suffering had a reason. How often have I seen people in this congregation turn their pain to purpose and make it mean something? We know Wiesel says explicitly that in the camps, those people who were assimilated, those people who had converted, they had the hardest time. It was those people who believed that this mattered, that their suffering had some purpose, that they could create something out of it. If not for themselves, then for someone else. Those people survived. I read this story last night, but it is so remarkable. I want to read it to you in case you didn't hear it. This is from Elie Wiesel, who, God rest his soul, was our centennial scholar. He said, it happened in a camp. This is a true story. The officer tried to convince one of the inmates to repudiate God. He said, I'll give you bread. The man said, no. He said, repudiate your God, curse your God, and I'll give you happiness, joy. The man said, no. He said, curse your God, and I will give you your life. He said, no. So the officer shot him. Still, the man lived and went on saying no. He shot him with five bullets in agony as he was dying. The man kept on saying, Adonai Huha Elohim, the ancient call of our martyrs with which we conclude Yom Kippur. God is God, God alone is God, and then he died. The son told me the story. You know, he said, my father was not a believer. But of course, he was a believer. Maybe not in the conventional sense, but in the sense that his death had meaning, his refusal had meaning, his suffering had purpose, that the world wasn't empty. That through it, you discover your strength. The delegates at the conference, those kids at the refugee camp, they believed that this mattered, or they would have collapsed. And I see so many people in our vapid, puffed-up world who do not take their souls seriously. In the Torah, it says that God berech Abraham bakol, that God blessed Abraham with everything. And the rabbis asked, what does that mean? He had to leave his home. He had to lose one of his children. The other one, he took up the mountain. He had to go twice to famine to Egypt. He had trouble with his wife. He had trouble all through his life. He saw the destruction of Sodom. What does it mean God blessed him in everything? He wasn't blessed in everything. They said, yes, he was. He was blessed to see everything, light and dark, joy and pain, all of the panoply and all the colors of the prism of life which is why even though it doesn't say in the Torah how Abraham came to God, the rabbis tell us that Abraham came to God 
as though he saw the world doleket. The tricky part of that is that doleket has two meanings. One meaning is full of light, and the other meaning is on fire. So Abraham found God either in pain and destruction and fear, or in light and beauty and wonder, or more likely in both. That they both had meaning for him. That they both mattered. Because let me tell you how Judaism does not see the world. It's not a game. There are a lot of cultures that have seen it that way. Maurice Samuel wrote his autobiography saying growing up in England, the Byronic hero, the Shakespearean hero, dies with a quip on his lips. It's a game. But Judaism says you take your soul seriously. It's in the image of God. It's not a game. And in fact, I can prove to you that Judaism doesn't see life as a game because the rabbis grew up in Rome. Many of you have been to the Colosseum. Maybe you didn't know, by the way, that the Colosseum was built, we now know, with the proceeds of the destroyed temple. A lot of the Colosseum was actually what the Romans took in 70 when they destroyed the temple. But what went on in the Colosseum? It was a game. People and lions, gladiators against each other. We like watching those games. We've all seen the movies. And what happens in the game? One gladiator wins, and then the entire crowd screams either thumbs up or thumbs down. And if it's thumbs down, the guy gets killed. It's all part of the game. The rabbis talk about this because they lived then. They saw it. By the way, so did St. Augustine. And St. Augustine talks about how addictive it is and how hard it is for him to stay away and he wants to go and he goes again and again and again. The rabbis say you're not allowed to go to the gladiatorial games. You're not allowed to go. But it gets better. Because then Rabbi Nathan comes along and he says not only are you allowed to go, you should go. Because if you go, then you can scream at the end, thumbs up, and maybe we will save a life. Can you imagine? Go to the worst place where they do the worst things because you still might be able to save someone because it's not a game. It's not about how many likes you have. It's about your soul. Judaism believes in the sanctity of work, the holiness of love, the significance of suffering. It believes in the meaning of life and that that meaning lasts for more than a lifetime, that it is passed on generation to generation. And so, on this, my final sermon 
of Rosh Hashanah as the senior rabbi of Sinai Temple, I want to conclude with a lesson that my father used in his final sermon on Rosh Hashanah as the rabbi of Harzion. In 1998, he'd been there for 30 years. In 2022, this is my 26th year as the senior rabbi, but if you count high holiday services, 39 years. And this is what he told his congregation. My father did his master's thesis on Azaria de Rossi. Azaria de Rossi was an Italian scholar who lived in the 16th century and was considered the first modern historian of Judaism. But this wasn't about Azaria de Rossi. Because my father did his thesis at the seminary and at Harvard, and there they had a manuscript where Azaria de Rossi's Maor Enayim, the manuscript of his great work, had notes in it by a man named Moritz Steinschneider. Now, my guess is very few, if any of you know Moritz Steinschneider, but once, a long time ago, it was a name to be reckoned with. Steinschneider, who died in 1907, that is the year after Sinai Temple was first founded, was one of the greatest scholars of the age and probably the greatest Jewish bibliographer who ever lived. He knew more about Jewish books in more languages because he spoke God knows how many languages than anyone else. And he went around the world and he used to catalog Jewish books, correct errors in them. And whenever anyone wanted to know about a book, the person to ask was Steinschneider. And someone once asked him, why are you doing it? Why have you devoted your entire life to cataloging Jewish books? And Steinschneider gave a devastating and very famous answer. He said, I'm doing it because I wish to give Judaism a decent burial. He didn't think that Judaism would survive. And so he was building a museum. And remember, he lived some 30 years before the Holocaust. He thought Judaism had no future. Instead of saying yes, yes to life, yes to purpose, yes to hope, Steinschneider said no. And so my father continued. Why did this become my journey? To prove Steinschneider and others will continue to be wrong. Here we are today at Sinai, 116 years after Steinschneider's death. We have women scholars, rabbis, leaders, which he never imagined. We have Jewish teachers in universities all over the world from which he would have been barred. We have a state of Israel 
where each day a language he thought would die is spoken by millions of people. All those changes took daring, took work, entailed suffering, showed love. Our lives matter. Our aims and purposes and efforts can change the world. They have before. They will again. Believe in your life. Teach your children to believe in their lives, to understand that they have an unfolding mystery in their soul and that it matters. And in that spirit, I wish to close my sermon with the same words with which my father closed his in September 21st of 1998 as he concluded on Rosh Hashanah. This is what he said, awaken brothers and sisters with a heart of joy. Shana Tovah.